stirreth up strife, but love covereth all transgressions. Then in verse 17, he is in the way of life that heedeth correction, but he that forsaketh reproof erreth. And then verse 19, in the multitude of words, there wanteth not transgression, but he that refraineth his lips doeth wisely. Chapter 11 and verse 13. He that goeth about as a tale-bearer revealeth secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit concealeth a matter. And then verse 24. There is that scattereth and increaseth yet more, and there is that withholdeth more than is meet, but it tendeth only to want. Chapter 12, verse 1. Whoso loveth correction loveth knowledge, but he that hateth reproof is brutish. Verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that is wise hearkeneth unto counsel. Verse 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 12. Hope deferred maketh the heart sick, but when the desire cometh, it is a tree of life. Verse 20. Walk with wise men, and thou shalt be wise but the companion of fools shall smart for it. And then verse 24, He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes, or chasteneth him diligently. Uh, chapter 14, verse 12, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof, are the ways of death. Chapter 14, verse 14, The backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways, and a good man shall be satisfied from himself. Verse 20, The poor is hated even of his own neighbor, but the rich hath many friends. Verse 34, Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Chapter 15, verse 1, A soft answer turneth away wrath, but a grievous word stirreth up anger. Verse 12, chapter 15, A scoffer loveth not to be reproved, he will not go unto the wise. Verse 16, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. Verse 17, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. A stalled ox means a, a, an ox that's being fatted up for a feast. It's been stalled so that it can't move, so it's getting nice and round and fat. So there you are. Um, then chapter 16, verse 18, 
Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Verse 28, a perverse man scattereth abroad strife, and a whisperer separateth chief friends. Chapter 17, verse 1, better is a dry morsel and quietness therewith than a house full of feasting with strife. Verse 10, a rebuke entereth deeper into one that hath understanding than a hundred stripes into a fool. Verse uh, chapter 18, I'm sorry, uh, verse 17 of chapter 17, a friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Chapter 18, verse 16, a man's gift maketh room for him, and bringeth him before great men. Chapter 19, verse 11, the discretion of a man maketh him slow to anger, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. Verse 17, he that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord, and his good deed will he pay him again. Verse 21, there are many devices in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. Chapter 20, verse 14, it is bad, it is bad, saith the buyer, but when he has gone his way, then he boasteth. Verse 17, bread of falsehood is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth shall be filled with gravel. Verse 22, Say not thou I will, re I will recompense evil, wait for the Lord, and he will save thee. Chapter 21, verse 9, It is better to dwell in the corner of the housetop than with a contentious woman in a wide house. 23, chapter 23, and... I'm sorry, uh, chapter 21 and 23. Whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from troubles. 22 and verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old he will not depart from it. Verse 13. The sluggard saith, there is a lion without, I shall be slain in the streets. That's it. That needs just a little bit of thinking out. Do you understand what he means? Uh, it's the kind of person who says they can't do anything. I've always got an excuse. 24, 16. For a righteous man falls seven times and riseth up again, but the wicked are overthrown by calamity. And then 30. I went by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding. And lo, it was all grown over with thorns. The face thereof was covered with nettles, and the stone wall thereof was broken down. Then I beheld and considered well. I saw and received instruction. Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as a robber, and thy want as an armed man. Chapter 25, verse 14. As clouds and wind without rain, so is he that both boasteth himself of his gifts falsely. Verse 17, Let thy foot be seldom in thy neighbor's house, lest he be weary of thee and hate thee. 
Verse 19, confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a broken tooth, or as Knox puts it, a rotten tooth, or a sprained foot, a foot out of joint. Verse 20, as one that taketh off a garment in cold weather, and as vinegar upon soda, so is he that singeth songs to a heavy heart. Needs to be taken account of by some. 26, verse 3. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the ass, and a rod for the back of fools. And then uh, chapter 26, verse 11. As a dog that returneth to his vomit, so is a fool that repeateth his folly. 27, verse 5. Better is open rebuke than love that is hidden. Verse 6 of the same chapter. Faithful are the wounds of a friend but the kisses of an enemy are profuse. 28.13 He that covereth his transgression shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall obtain mercy. And 29, verse 1, He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. And verse 25, the fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Now I just want to read one or two more. I'm taking up a little time, but it's coming that we would have usually done later on. Out of the American Revised Version, I've been reading out of the Standard Version. I want to read one or two out of the American Revised Version because they make it much, much clearer. Um... 17, chapter 17, verse 14. <clears throat> now, listen to this. This is very good in my estimation. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quick before the quarrel breaks out. 18 and verse 24. There are friends who pretend to be friends, but there is a friend who sticks, who sticks closer than a brother. Chapter 20 and verse 19. He who goes about gossiping reveals secrets. Therefore do not associate with one who speaks foolishly. Chapter 20 and verse 25. It is a snare for a man to say rashly, it is holy, and to reflect only after making vows. 26. 14. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer discreetly. And then uh, 26, uh, 23, like the glaze covering an earthen vessel of smooth lips with an evil heart, he who hates dissembles with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with guile, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Chapter 27 and verse 15. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil 
in his hand, in his right hand. And verse 17, this is a very wonderful one. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. The thought is that in fellowship we shape one another. Very, very fine. And then 27, oh, I've read those, haven't I, 27? Uh, 29, lastly in here, 29, verse 9. If a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. <laughs> now, I've got a few more I want to read to you. I've been studying all these in these different versions. By far the best version, as far as the book of Proverbs goes, is Ronald Knox's, Monsignor Knox's version. Strangely enough, it's a very, very fine version indeed. I want to just read one or two out to you from here that I feel are better than in any of the other versions and bring it home to us. First in chapter 10 and verse 9, he walks secure who walks pure. He walks secure who walks pure. And then uh, verse 26, what irks a man more than vinegar on the tooth or smoke in the eye? A lingering messenger. <laughs> uh, chapter 13, verse 13. Neglect thy errand, whatever it be, and thou art in default. Carry out thy orders and be at peace. And that's very good. So often when we're told to do something, we linger and, and we always have an unhappy feeling. We're never, we're never at peace. <coughs> One that came home. Chapter 14, verse 23. <coughs> Hard work is sure wealth. Of chattering comes only poverty. Uh, then 14, verse uh, 23. Oh, we, we've read that, sorry. Um, 17, verse 2. Where sons are fools, slaves will be masters. And verse 19. He loves a feud that loves contention. Build high and court thy ruin. False heart never found happiness, nor lying tongue escaped mischief. Uh, chapter 18, verse 1. I think this is exceedingly fine. No one so quick to find pretext as he that would break with a friend. He is in fault continually. That is the friend is in thought continually. Verse 8, Innocence and us seem the works of the backbiter, yet their poison sinks deep into a man's belly. 19, verse 13, Great hurt it is to be a fool's father. He has a roof that drips unendingly who is husband to a scold. Chapter 19 and 16, law observed is life preserved. Remember that. Law observed is life preserved. The careless step leads the way to death. And then 22 and verse 10, banish the reckless spirit and strife goes out with him. Thou art rid of quarreling and of disgrace. Chapter 25, verse 33, 20, 23. The north wind stops rain and a crown, the backbiter. That's very good. 
the north wind stops rain uh, in Palestine, uh, and a frown stops the backfire tide. Some of us have too ready ears. Then in chapter 26, verse 20, no fuel, no fire, no telltale, no quarrel. Coal needs ember, and fire timber, and strife a quarrel. Think of it. No fuel, no fire, no telltale, no quarrel. Coal needs ember, fire timber, and strife a quarrel for their kindling. Innocent enough seem the words of the backbiter, yet their poison sinks deep into a man's belly. 28, verse 2 and 3. I thought this was rather remarkable. Short rains and many where the land is plagued for its guilt. By wise counsel and men's talk overheard, long lives the king. Tempest threatens and famine when poor men oppress the poor. I thought of communist countries actually. Tempest threatens and famine when poor men oppress the poor. A rather remarkable uh, commentary on some parts of the world. And verse 9 Turn a deaf ear to thy teachers and thy prayer shall be all sacrilege. And verse 19 Till field and fill belly. Just means work and you'll be alright. 29 and verse 11 Folly blurts out its whole mind. <laughs> Wise men reserve utterance till by and by. Well, let's just sing one short hymn and then we'll turn straight away this evening to a quite unique book of the Bible, the book of Proverbs. It's the third book in the poetical division of the Old Testament, which consists of five books. We have dealt with Job, we have dealt with the book of the Psalms, now we come to the third one, the book of Proverbs. There are only three books in the Old Testament, within this section, all within this section, that represent what we call the wisdom literature of the Bible. There are some other books outside of the Bible that are the product of the wise. Uh, a class of men called the wise, the wise men. But we have only three in Scripture, also some psalms uh, we could uh, describe as wisdom literature. It is a name, technical name, given to a certain kind of literature. Job is wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature, and the other book is the book of Proverbs. I think we have already pointed out when we were study, studying the book of Job that wisdom is the best um, uh, summary of this whole section of the Old Testament, the poetical um, books of the Old Testament. Um, <clears throat> in Scripture, as we have already said, wisdom is not intellectual knowledge. It's not so often what it is, what today um, we think of as wisdom, pure philosophy. Uh, it's not that at all. It's not human speculation um, and human um, thought, merely. Wisdom 
in the scripture is always that kind of knowledge, or perhaps we could put it this way, that kind of knowledge or discernment or insight or perception which is produced by the Holy Spirit through our experience of the Word of God in practical life. That is, it is not just knowing. There are thousands of people who know. Many people have gone through Bible colleges and many other courses of training. They have knowledge, but they are not wise. Wisdom and knowledge are most definitely not the same thing. Anyone can be taught a certain amount of knowledge, but not anyone can become wise. A man can become knowledgeable by his own effort, by just simply getting down to things and learning. Many Christians can become knowledgeable with that kind of knowledge which has the danger, though it's good, it has the danger of puffing up the Christian, the child of God. Wisdom is entirely different. It is that knowledge which we could look upon as raw material having gone through uh, the mill and is now produced as something. We could almost describe uh, knowledge as uh, pure, um, not pure gold, but gold in its rough, unpurified, unrefined state. And we could describe wisdom as gold, that gold, that material, when it's been purified and worked upon so that it has become a thing of real beauty and of value. So you, I trust that you begin to see a little bit of the difference between wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom is the experimental application of the Word of God. That's all. It is the Word of God not only known, but experienced. It is one thing to know theoretically, technically, what is right and what is wrong. It is another thing to have been through the experience yourself and to have known the Word of God applied to you by the Holy Spirit in that situation and you come through on the other side with a perception and a discernment and an insight that you never had before. Your knowledge has now become part of you. Knowledge is nearly always in Scripture connected with the mind, but wisdom is connected with the whole being. Wisdom is often associated with the heart and knowledge with the mind. And there's an often a very great gulf between knowledge in the mind and wisdom in the heart. When knowledge has gone from the mind to the heart and out in, through, through our life, we come into a new experience, then we are wise. We are beginning to become wise. I might also say that wisdom is ever and only the product of the cross. Knowledge is not. Any person can become knowledgeable if they will only set their backs to the work. Anyone. Of course, naturally, a lot will depend upon your natural states of intelligence and so on. But we can all become, to some degree or other, the amount of energy we put into it, the amount of diligence, that we have, we can become knowledgeable in the things of God. But wisdom is the product of the cross. 
only. It is when that knowledge is, is devastated, shattered by the work of the cross, so that instead of it becoming a thing that can puff up, it is a thing that, uh, whose glory is meekness. Wisdom, hallmark, is meekness. Is meekness so uh, I want you to note that, and to note that wisdom is to do with the whole being. Throughout the book of Proverbs, you will discover it's every part, a man's body, a man's heart, a man's mind, spirit, soul, and body. Wisdom involves every part of the man's being and every part of his life. It comes down to table manners. It comes down to things like punctuality. It comes down to whether you can do an errand or you can't do an errand. It comes down to whether you can take instruction from others, whether you can take a command and carry it out. That's wisdom. Knowledge is entirely different. You might know everything. You might know all about things. But that's quite different from wisdom. Wisdom involves every part of your being. Not only your, your appreciation of the thing technically, but the way that it is performed. That's wisdom. So you see, when we come to this book of Proverbs, we are dealing with something that is really tremendous. For this book of Proverbs, who means the question of wisdom? In Job, we saw the kind of suffering that produced wisdom. Uh, it's not an ordinary kind of suffering. We've found that all these books of the poetical section can be summarized by wisdom. Uh, the book of Job revealed to us a kind of suffering in the sovereignty of God that produces a singular kind of wisdom. The book of the Psalms reveals to us worship which produces wisdom. Proverbs reveals to us wisdom in its relationship to everyday life and routine. All these books, they are each one a step forward in the unfolding of God's revelation about any given thing. Here, the basis of it all is wisdom. Do let us at the very outset be done with any idea that wisdom is ethereal or abstract, that somehow or other it is philosophy to do with God up there and, uh, you know, how he does things up there. It's not anything like that at all. Wisdom is linked essentially, essentially, with the way a man behaves. And that's why knowledge can puff up. That's why the folk at Col Colossus, for instance, they've gone into great, oh, the most wonderful things. They, they felt they'd seen visions and now they were lost and talked about angels and invisible powers and principalities and all the wonderful science of what goes on in the invisible. And they really thought they were very, very wise until Paul wrote to them and he said, you know, you've, you've missed the mark. You've completely got off the rails on this point. Wisdom. There can be a kind of wisdom that wraps you all up with things up there. But that's not the kind of wisdom which is Christ. The wisdom which is Christ is something to do with all down here. The wisdom from above, but it's on the earth. That's the point. We must be careful of this kind of heavenliness which is all up there. It is a wisdom from above. It doesn't mean that we are lost about. 
It means that we're down here, living down here, but we've got a wisdom which is from above. That's the point. And that's the wisdom that is described in the book of Proverbs. Strangely enough, some people think the book of Proverbs is rather awful because it deals with husbands and wives and children and parents and uh, masters and slaves and all kinds of things that many people think should best be left out uh, of preaching or, or any kind of mention uh, and so on. Well, that's not the kind of wisdom we deal with when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ comes right down to the most practical point. And all the book of Proverbs says is simply this. If, if what, you're, what you know about the Lord Jesus, if what you know about God, cannot in every single point be related to practical situations in your life, it is worth nothing whatsoever. Nothing whatsoever. Unless it can be translated into experience. Um, we might just say one or two other things before we just look at the authorship of this. Um, as time went on, a class of men grew up in Israel, amongst the people of God, alongside of two clearly established classes, the priest and the prophet. These men became in the end as influential and as authoritative as the priest and the prophet. They were called the wise, just simply and beautifully the wise. But they occupied in the end a position of supreme importance, as great as the priest and as great as the prophet. Indeed, some scholars would have us believe that they actually superseded the priest and the prophet in importance. A class of men called the wise. Proverbs is one of their most remarkable contributions to the word of God. Proverbs in Hebrew is, is, from beginning to end, in Hebrew poetic form. You remember all our studies on that? Parallelism. From beginning to end, it is pure parallelism. But it differs from the Psalter in one thing. It was never intended to be sung. Uh, the book of Proverbs was always intended to be recited, learnt by heart, memorized. It's very interesting to find the word that has been translated proverb. It comes from the root, its root meaning is to represent. And it means simply a likeness or a comparison, a simile. A proverb is simply that, at least in the scripture sense. It is something which has a likeness, it's something which is a kind of figure. It's rather helpful actually to note in Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 6, a rather interesting description given, given there in the preface to the book of uh, Proverbs. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their dark sayings. Now, Knox puts it like this. <clears throat> so it is the American Revised Version, if I remember rightly. They've changed it just a little to this. To understand a proverb, proverb and its figure. The words of the wise, and Knox puts it this way, and their hidden thing, thoughts, the, and the hidden thoughts they signify. Now a proverb, you see, is something which doesn't, uh, is very crisp, terse, to the point, but it doesn't explain itself fully. It just leaves you with something which you've got to think out. Some are more clear 
and more um, easy to understand uh, than others. Um, the same word actually can be used of parable. Uh, the Greek word in the Septuagint, uh, the, word, the Hebrew word proverb was translated by the same word that we have in uh, the New Testament for parable. The word is more or less almost the same, a parable, a proverb. And proverbs have always been one of the methods of the ancient East to teach people. Um, they have taken a gem of practical help, put it into the shortest, most crisp form, and then, uh, as it were, got the, uh, the pupils, the disciples, to reiterate it again and again, reiterated, and they gradually learnt it off by heart. So that uh, in, uh, amongst the people of God under the Old Covenant, Proverbs was a way uh, by which teachers of the Word of God um, instructed uh, those uh, in the Word of God, in practical uh, wisdom. It's been described as the wit of one and the wisdom of many. That's a proverb. The wit of one and the wisdom of many. In the New Testament, there are some samples of wisdom literature, actually. Uh, perhaps you've never thought about this. But the Sermon on the Mount is what we call wisdom literature, New Testament wisdom literature. And there is no doubt, and it is a very interesting study, that the book of Proverbs has had a tremendous influence upon the sayings of the Lord and upon the uh, gospel and, of course, particularly on the letter of James. Uh, James' letter is the most, the most obvious um, example of wisdom literature in the New Testament. The parables also are the same. Um, we can't take time this evening uh, upon this, but it, it is in an interesting study to note that although the New Testament quotes uh, the book of Proverbs only uh, quite a comparatively few times uh, compared with other books, the book of Proverbs underlies a tremendous amount of the Gospels and the Epistles. It is a most interesting study. Many of the things the Lord Jesus said, for instance, were based upon Proverbs. Things like, don't take the cheap seats, but take the lowest, and then they will say to you, come up. And many other things like that are found here within the book of Proverbs. Now, can we say anything about the authorship and date of the book of Proverbs? Well, it presents us with the same problem as the Psalter. You remember, when we took the Psalter, we found uh, a big difficulty. First of all, we have to look at it like this. We've got to find out, are there any Proverbs here in this book that are clearly known to be the Proverbs of a person named? Secondly, there are a number of collections that make up the book. Do we know who is the author of those various collections or the date of, their collect of those collections? And thirdly, have we any clue as to who finally compiled the book as we now have it and arranged it uh, and the date? Well, firstly, um, we must recognize that many of the Proverbs themselves were probably much older than the, the form in which we find them in the book of Proverbs. Um, it's probably... Um, quite true to say that 
Solomon did not only create a large number of proverbs, but he probably um, put into a new form many that were already current and had been current for a large number of years um, previous to his reign. Um, we find quite a few names. I've mentioned, the, put them on the board here in a rather hurried fashion. Uh, we find, for instance, that <clears throat> there are Proverbs of Solomon, definitely uh, marked as such, uh, quite a large number uh, by Solomon. We find uh, also that there are quite a number of Proverbs that are attributed to a class that we've mentioned, the wise. When exactly, who were the wise men, we do not know. They are anonymous, except that we know they belong to this class of men called the wise. They are probably the oldest of all in the book of Proverbs. They probably preceded uh, Solomon. There is real reason to believe that they may have come from David's reign. And then, of course, we have um, these other two men, Agur and Lemuel. Lemuel. Uh, we know nothing about them at all. As far as we know, they were not even Israelites. Certainly King Lemuel wasn't an Israelite, like Job. He was one who was not uh, actually uh, um, a child um, of Israel. So that's all we know about the individual authorship of Proverbs. Now we find in the book of Proverbs a number of collections. I have them put them here. You will find them actually, uh, they're marked out here. One collection is Proverbs 1 to 9. It begins with the general title, and by the way, it's a general title for the whole book. In verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Proverbs 1 to 9. Now, Proverbs 1 to 9 is actually a discourse. It's not like the rest of the book uh, of Proverbs. It's not just small, short uh, Proverbs, but an actual discourse. Uh, in poetic form on wisdom. From chapter 10 to 22, 16, we are told clearly, it is headed, the Proverbs of Solomon. From 22, 17 to the end of 24, we, we discover these are the Proverbs of the wise. <coughs> Many believe that from chapter 1 to chapter 9 are also uh, can be attributed to this class that we call the wise. Chapter 25 to 29 is expressly stated that there are Proverbs of Solomon collected by the men of Hezekiah. Chapter 30 is another collection, and chapter 31. Chapter 30 by Agur, and chapter 31 by King Lemuel. So these are the collections that we find in the Psalter. Now, I think it is quite reasonable to believe that the main body of the book of Proverbs is due to Solomon, um, that is, on the human side, is due to Solomon's inspiration and energy. If we take it, uh, what we have said just now, we discover one very interesting fact, that whatever we might feel about the first nine chapters, from chapter 10, to chapter 29, they are all more or less, except for those few chapters from 22 to 24, those uh, really just almost two chapters, um, 
It is all the Proverbs of Solomon. No one has ever questioned that. All are clear. So that anyway, if we cut it right down to the minimum, the main body of the book of Proverbs is the work of Solomon. Then I think it is quite reasonable and uh, balanced to believe that the other Proverbs, the Proverbs that we find in chapter 22, 23, and 24, and the first nine chapters were uh, collected and arranged, if not the work of Solomon, the first chapters, uh, were collected and arranged under his direction. In chapter 1 and verse 1, it says the, the proverb of Solomon. And all agree that this of, it does not mean uh, that they were his composition, but like the presenter's collection in the book of the Psalm, of the chief musicians, that has now been changed to for the chief musician. This could also mean in that sense that this was Solomon's collection. We know from scripture that Solomon was a, of, of a type, and a remarkable natural historian and botanist, I say of a type, uh, of his day. Um, his, his interest in all kinds of things, uh, various departments, um, knew really no bounds. And uh, we know that the era of Solomon's reign was marked by tremendous literary activity. So it is not surprising, and I think it is quite reasonable to believe, as uh, it has always traditionally been thought, that the main body of the book of Proverbs belongs to the inspiration of Solomon. Uh, if it is not his own original composition, uh, all of it, a good part of it is, and quite a lot of it is due to his collection and arrangement. Um, then uh, I think we could ask ourselves uh, the question that if that collection then uh, it was in being, which would cover from chapter 1 to chapter 24, we then have a clear uh, clue, more than a clue, a clear statement as to those chapters 24 to tw 25 to 29. It says expressly in chapter 25 and verse 1, these are the Proverbs of Solomon copied out by the men of Hezekiah. We also know that the period of the Reformation in the reign of Hezekiah was one of tremendous literary activity and renaissance. And uh, therefore it is not hard for us to believe that once again, the book of Proverbs came uh, into view, the collections that may have been an original collection under Solomon's hand was now uh, enlarged and uh, edited by the men of Hezekiah. And then lastly we find the last two chapters, chapter 30 and chapter 31, are by these two men, Agur and Lemuel, that we have mentioned, and form a kind of opinion. Can we say anything about the date of these collections? We can only with certainty um, time uh, parts of them. We don't know, for instance, chapters 1 to 9, if they're the work of Solomon, we can date them. If they're the work of the wise, we can't date them. They probably preceded Solomon, or they may have been contemporary with Solomon. 
But if we look upon all this part, these collections from chapter 1 to chapter 24, as being under the directions uh, of Solomon, then we can date that collection as being somewhere approximately between 1000 BC and 930 BC. We can certainly date the collection 20, chapter 25 to 29 as being in the region of 7, 720, I think, 720 to 687, 729 to 687 uh, BC. The others we can't date at all, but in actual fact, uh, that only leaves two chapters that we can't date, and those are the last two chapters. Approximately, therefore, we can date the two major parts of the book of Proverbs as being in the reign of Solomon, the first uh, 24 chapters, and the next few chapters from 25 to 29 belonging to the reign of Hezekiah. Now, can we say anything about the compilation? Who was the uh, compiler and have we any clue to date we cannot say with absolute certainty anything really uh, about the um, compilation of the book of Proverbs Jewish tradition ha, ha, there is a very interesting Jewish tradition that ascribes Isaiah the song of Solomon Ecclesiastes and the book of Proverbs to the men of Hezekiah um, they believe that it all belonged to that reign. But there are some very interesting difficulties about it. And one, I'll only just mention in passing, simply this. If it is the work of the men of Hezekiah, then why did they uh, deliberately um, point out one section as being there? Surely they would have uh, mentioned as it being completely uh, the work. It seems rather strange. And modern scholarship, and I think on the whole, more balanced and reasonable scholarship uh, today, believes that it is more probably the work of Ezra. We know that when they went back from the exile, back to Jerusalem, in about 450 BC, there was again a tremendous uh, move forward. And uh, it is probable that the book of Proverbs, as we now have it, in its, under, with its present arrangement, was, um, uh, uh, can be dated uh, in the time of Ezra. Well, there we are. <clears throat> that's so much, that's all that we can say about the authorship and date of the book of Proverbs. One point we've already made is the whole book is in pure parallelism. The one thing we have not said is that in the last chapter, chapter 31, from verse 10 to the end, it is in a certainty anything really uh, about the um, compilation of the book of Proverbs. Jewish tradition, ha, ha, there is a very interesting Jewish tradition that ascribes Isaiah, the Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and the book of Proverbs to the men of Hezekiah. Um, they believe, believe that it would all belong to that reign. But there are some very interesting difficulties about it. And one, I'll only just mention in passing, simply this. If it is the work of the men of Hezekiah, then why did they uh, deliberately um, point out one section as being there?
surely they would have uh, mentioned as it being completely uh, the work. It seems rather strange. And modern scholarship, and I think on the whole, more balanced and reasonable scholarship, uh, today believes that it is more probably the work of Ezra. We know that when they went back from the exile, back to Jerusalem, in about 450 BC, there was again a tremendous uh, move forward. And uh, it is probable that the book of Proverbs, as we now have it, in its, under, with its present arrangement, was, um, uh, can be dated uh, in the time of Ezra. Well, there we are. <clears throat> that's so much, that's all that we can say about the authorship and date of the book of Proverbs. One point we've already made is the whole book is in pure parallelism. The one thing we have not said is that in the last chapter, chapter 31, from verse 10 to the end, it is in acrostic form. That is, each verse from verse 10 begins with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Well, so much for the technical side. I don't know how much you've gained from all that. But that's the background of the book of Proverbs, a very interesting background in actual fact, because again, it is full, if only we could spend the time on it, it is full of instruction as to the way in which the Lord has formed his word, the way in which he has developed his word, the way in which he has expanded his word. I do trust that you're beginning to see something in this. Some books of the Bible came into being in the matter of moments. They belonged to one hand, and they were the product of a few years in time. But others, like the book of the Psalms and the book of Proverbs, uh, are over hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, with the most remarkable um, oversight of the Lord, not allowing them to uh, pass away into oblivion, but somehow keeping the thing alive, because there was something yet he had further to say. I think it's a wonderful thought that he had something further to say in these books, which he could not say perhaps at the beginning. And centuries passed away until the final word was said, and then the book has come to us in the form in which we have it. Now, what about the key to the book? Let's now put aside the technical side and let's look at the spiritual. What is the key to the book? The key is everywhere quite apparent. Uh, we've mentioned it again and again. Like the Psalter, it doesn't need very deep reading to discover the key to the book of the Proverbs. It is wisdom. Wisdom. Only uh, it is wisdom in a certain, uh, from a certain aspect. And we're going to look at that in one moment. The key to the book of Proverbs is wisdom. <coughs> wisdom in its true character. Its true character. You see, I'm afraid that in spite of all the studies that we've taken, obviously the Holy Spirit's fear is the same, that in spite of the studies we've taken in the book of Job, and particularly the studies we've taken in the book of the Psalms, it, is, it would have been possible without the book of Proverbs to have got an idea that wisdom is a very intangible ethereal, abstract, speculative thing. And that somehow it's to do with suffering, which is always in some people's minds intensely mystical. 
uh, and uh, sort of out of this world. Um, and uh, it's to do with worship, which in a lot of people's minds is again intensely mystical, uh, kind of thing that uh, belongs devotion, they say, uh, as if it's nothing to do with life at all. <coughs> of course, for the person who is not a superficial reader, who really reads uh, the book of Job and the book of Psalms, uh, they discover uh, that the true meaning both of suffering in the sovereignty of God and of worship as being something that is not just sitting uh, still, but something which is directly connected with life. But the book of Proverbs <clears throat> is the very necessary complement to those other two books, because it, it comes right out into the open, as it were. Um, it, it leaves us in no shadow of doubt as to what wisdom is. It's as if the Lord has said, I'm not going to leave any of you with the slightest suspicion about wisdom. I will come right out into the open now and I will, I will for once and for all clearly reveal to you uh, what the nature and the character of true wisdom is. So we have the book of Proverbs and this is one of the first things we find about wisdom. In the book of Proverbs wisdom is always spoken of as a person. It is personified. Sometimes it's personified as a woman, sometimes as a man. But always wisdom is personified. And the most remarkable, most remarkable personification is found in Proverbs chapter 8, which I expect you all to know. It is toward the end of the part of the book of Proverbs, which is the big fundamental discourse on wisdom. Slowly, we shall see, I trust in one moment, the um, Holy Spirit has been building up to a climax and then in chapter 8 he reveals wisdom as a person who has been with God the Father from the beginning. And for the first time we from the New Testament era can look back and fully understand that wisdom is Christ the Son of God. Wisdom is not a thing, wisdom is a person. It is very interesting this one fact which all the rabbis noted uh, with their imperfect knowledge that wisdom was always related directly to God and no man was ever called wise unless he had an established relationship with God. Now that's very interesting. The rabbis said that. They said that God, God completely disregards everything that men call wisdom unless it comes out of of a deep heart relationship with himself. The end of the book of Proverbs in chapter 30 is that. Um, Agor, Agor says, who can ascend into heaven? Who can, who can go down to the deeps? Where is wisdom? How can I discover wisdom? He says, wisdom is in God. And then he says another remarkable thing. He adds this thing. The word of the Lord is tried. Therefore, do not despise it, and do not add to it. Now what on earth is he talking about? He means simply this. The wisdom of God is based on God's revealed word. What God has revealed to us. That's how we can become wise. As we enter into a relationship with God, and as we study what he has revealed to us, so we can become wise in his hands. But you try to add to his word speculation. 
mere philosophy. You start to wet and you lose the way of wisdom immediately. Or you despise the word of the Lord and lean rather to the wisdom of man and begin to try and interpret the mind of God through the wisdom of man and you've lost everything. Do you see? Wisdom is completely, uh, is a quality that is inherent in God according to scripture. And a man can only be wise, as it were, as God comes out to him. When God comes out to a man, he can be made wise. But if God chooses not to come out, he remains a fool. So all the wisdom of the world is called foolishness with God. It's just foolishness. They, in their wisdom, could not find outside. It was folly. God calls wisdom that which comes out of a relationship with human beings which he himself establishes. So let us um, make that that very, very important and I think rather wonderful point that that in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is personified and it is the person of Christ. Christ is here portrayed as the wisdom of God. You know, to me, I've been thinking about today and being really rather thrilled because although there's such a lot to cover, um, in the last two days on this whole question of the book of Proverbs um, the thing that has filled me is the, the letters to the church at Corinth I can't think of any company that were more on the earth than the people at Corinth and I can't think of any more who were really more wrapped up with the things of the earth and were more confronted with the things of the earth than the folk at Corinth and do you know that the word wisdom comes out again and again in that letter and Paul begins it all by saying Christ crucified is the wisdom of God. Now you would have thought that was a very unwise thing for him to say to these people. Surely he should have got down to all the little divisions and everything else. But what he was trying to point out was this, that, the, that Christ as the wisdom of God is, is the only answer to life on this earth. Christ as the wisdom of God is the only answer to life on this earth. We shall see that in just one more moment. So it's interesting that in the first chapter of the first letter to Corinth, the Apostle Paul says, Christ crucified the wisdom of God and the power of God. And then he goes on to one step further. He says, who of God is made unto us wisdom? And then he goes on to say, look here, I've determined I'm not going to know anything among you save Jesus Christ, because he's the wisdom of God. I'm not going to listen to all your speculations and suspicions and reservations and everything else. Christ is the wisdom of God, and that's my basis here in Corinth. And it must now be your basis. So you see, when you come to look at it like that, this book of Proverbs takes on a new life. You see, I'm afraid that many people forget this and go on to this. They love the Proverbs, but they find the discourse a little bit too much. They think it's perhaps a little bit uh, high-flown. So they leave out the first nine chapters and like to get down to all the Proverbs that are all dealing with all different practical situations and so on. But you see, the discourse is absolutely fundamental to the wisdom. The wrist is, is, is just like hubs of a wheel, uh, uh, spindles of a wheel, spokes of a wheel, without its hub. The discourse is the hub. And the end of the discourse is the pres- presentation of Christ as the wisdom of God. Wisdom as found within God as being his very being given to us. 
Well, I trust that really comes to us because, you know, all other kinds of things begin to flood into one's heart. For instance, you see, Christ is revealed not as some people foolishly think, as the light of his people. He is revealed in the word of God as the light of the world. And the book of Proverbs reveals him as the light of the world. That is the only wisdom that this world can ever know and can ever come into. Christ is the wisdom. He's not just exclusively reserved for his own people. He has been given to the whole of humanity as the light of this whole age, the whole world, the whole arrangement, the whole created order. Christ is the light of the world. Not just of us as people, and so, of course, this book, it floods things with light. Listen, righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And then it speaks of a throne being established in one part of the book of Proverbs. It says that a, a monarch who judges righteously and lives righteously will have an established throne. I believe that's why Victoria's throne was established. Whatever people might think about uh, Queen Victoria. The point was this, that the Georgian reign was filled with the most terrible abuse and immorality. And uh, our own throne in this country, you, you might not think it has anything to do with them, but uh, I think it would have gone the way of all the kingdoms of Europe if it hadn't been that Victoria in the hands of God whatever we might think about her, uh, was used to establish a kind of justice and righteousness connected with the throne. Well, you'll find that in Scripture. And the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about all kinds of things, people who've got unjust weights and measurements, and all kinds of things, all to do with practical life. Christ is revealed as the light of the world, not just as the light of his people. Very interesting. Then I want you also to note this, that Proverbs reveals to us the intensely practical expression of Christ's life and nature. It reveals to us that, that the life of Christ is, is intensely practical, intensely practical. I don't understand the people who've got this idea about Christ. You know, when Christ was here on earth, he shocked the people of his day, the sort of spiritual people of his day, by absolutely revealing himself as in intensely practical. And the thing that I marvel about is this, that every time I've seen anything more of God, and I use the word God in the most general way, in the most general way, every time I've seen anything more of God, I have marveled at how intensely practical he is. And I have marveled at the distance that the general natural view of God in this world is from the way God reveals himself. They think of him as far off up there in the clouds, nothing to do with life. Whereas the book of Proverbs reveals that God, the whole, the whole order of life, the whole arrangement of life, is intimately bound up with God himself. So it's very, very interesting, I find. You see, it's a striking fact and I think a solemnizing fact 
that the book of Proverbs is wholly to do with love. Now listen, and with this love. There is not a reference in the whole book of Proverbs to heaven. There is not a reference in the whole book of Proverbs to afterlife, except simply always in a way that will solemnize you now. Sheol. That's how always it speaks of going down into the pit, down into the grave. Never does it refer to any joy in an afterlife. Never does it refer to anything beyond this life. The book of Proverbs is completely bounded by this life. Now why? It's just like the church at Corinth. Christ is revealed there as the wisdom of God to a church that was completely bounded by this life and was absolutely up to its neck in problems to do with this life. Let's forget the church of Ephesus for a while. I think that if we knew something more about the church of Ephesus, we'd discover that they were up to their, uh, uh, their neck also in problems to do with this life. Anyone who's going to be real, anyone who's going to know anything of the Lord, is going to come up against Corinthian problems, Corinthian situations. It doesn't matter what you've seen, you're going to find it. And the only answer to anything that is on this earth like that earthly situation, earthly people, earthly problems, the only answer to it all is Christ as the wisdom of God. Now you will find here that throughout this book of Proverbs, nowhere can you find any mention of anything that's abstract or ethereal. It is remarkable. Indeed, I noticed some of you laughing while I read some of the Proverbs because they go home upon practical points that most of us don't expect to discover in Scripture. Things like a nagging wife. You don't expect to find that in Scripture. Uh, people think that that belongs to the music hall or something else. But as all of you know, it doesn't always belong to the music hall. Some of us are nags by nature. And it's something which has got to be overcome uh, by the Holy Spirit and dealt with uh, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, you see, these are intensely uh, practical problems of life. And Proverbs is all to do with this life and nothing outside of that. Nothing outside of it. It doesn't refer to it. It keeps everything to the inside. Now, what has that got to teach us? It teaches, as I've said, that knowledge, knowledge, whatever we might know, whatever we might have discovered, it is of no true avail if it is abstract and ethereal. It must become wisdom by application to our everyday routine life. If it doesn't, you might as well leave it in your notebook because that's where God will leave it. It's just simply that it has no effect whatsoever on God. is not the least bit interested in it. As far as God is concerned, you and I are his notebooks. And unless the thing becomes absolutely part of our being, and we become wise in Christ, through our experience of the word of God, in the most practical situations, then we might as well all give up now. And I'll tell you one other further thing on this point. We shall discover that the Lord will plant us into Corinthian situations until we do discover that Christ is the wisdom of God. You're going to have the most tremendous ministry and the most tremendous teaching 
But unless we discover Christ as the wisdom of God, as we're up against Corinthian situations, we'll, we'll, we'll just think, what is the good of knowledge? Does anyone, can anyone tell me any good in knowledge? God who knows all things, does he have to tell you everything just so that you might know all things? I don't think so at all. The whole point in, in transmitting knowledge to us is that we might know how to use knowledge. God doesn't want us as walking encyclopedias. He is the encyclopedia. And the only rightful one. He wants us to be people who know how to get it out of him and into life. And that's the book of Proverbs. It teaches us simply that Wisdom is not mere philosophy, nor is it speculation, nor is it mere knowledge. It's not just reflection on vast eternal principles in the universe. Some people have got the idea that wisdom is when people sit down all wrapped up with eternity and see the most wonderful things in eternity. It is not so. Even the city of God, as I have so often said to you, is linked with seven churches in seven localities in the most appalling earthly situations and the city of God is produced out of that it doesn't come by sitting down and looking or speculating or just reflecting that way no wisdom is something that is is to do with our relationship with the Lord it is to do with how we can live in our relationship with the Lord Wisdom is simply how I can take Christ as my wisdom and live it out. This is the great failure of most of us. We know the Lord has made unto us wisdom, but we don't know how to take him as our wisdom and live him out. But that's the situation, and that's the Paul's great burden in his letter to Corinth, that they might learn how to take the Lord Jesus who made unto them wisdom and live him out in the most practical situations. Know what that experience is that comes from that. Well, I really should close that there are so many other things to say. You know, it's so instructive that you don't find Zion mentioned, you don't find Jerusalem mentioned, you don't find the temple of God mentioned, you don't find the house of God, the tabernacle. Nothing's mentioned in the book of Proverbs. Well, why? We know it's so important. Why? Because you see, wisdom is all to do with personal relations. You can't hide in someone else's wisdom. You have got to become wise. And so the book of Proverbs eradicates anything that anyone could, could somehow fasten hold of, you see, and hide in. Uh, oh, there's a tremendous amount of the book of Proverbs about relationships. About, oh, you just take one theme, the gossip, or the whisper. The tail bearer, the backbiter, just, just trace it through the book of Proverbs. You'll be appalled at the amount that you'll discover from every angle. You, do you find anything else about relationships with one another? The book is filled with it. And yet there's no mention of Zion, of Jerusalem, or anything else because it wants to focus our attention right down upon the fact that it is to do with personal life and relationships. You and I coming to know Christ and living him out in daily experience as the wisdom of God. So you see, really, this question of wisdom boils down to this, how much there is of the Lord in us. Really. 
knowledge, we can have a very little bit of the Lord and a tremendous amount of knowledge. You know what that means puffed up, don't you? It means something very small that's been inflated. Inflated. And there are many Christians that really you only have to put them and they're just... And the true measure would be seen in an instant. They're inflated. There's a little bit of the Lord, but it's inflated. Wisdom's not met. Wisdom is a lot of the Lord. And knowledge, as it were, all the time becoming practical experience. That it becomes wisdom. Well, I think I shall have to finish there, but I would just take a few more minutes only uh, to point out to you that there are 15 references in the book of Proverbs to the fear of the Lord. And the thing that comes out more clearly than anything else is this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, many people come to me often and say, oh, this is also very wonderful. You speak about it as if it's all related to, to my life and everything else, but it isn't related to my life. I don't find it works out at all in my life. Well, I'll tell you why. Because you are smitten with the 20th century disease. And the 20th century disease is there's no fear of the Lord in your eyes. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, what is the fear of the Lord? Well, it will stop you saying things about the Lord. And many of us say the most outrageous things about the Lord and his evil. Because there is no fear of the Lord in our eyes. When there is the fear of the Lord in our eyes, then uh, it's the beginning of wisdom. There is no wisdom, only knowledge, until there's the fear of the Lord. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Now, I looked into this word, and we won't look to all the references that are, I say there were 15 of them uh, throughout this book. But um, the thing that is interested me this is the little word beginning. I looked up this word beginning, and I discovered something that's very interesting. It doesn't only mean the initiation, the commencement, the start. The fear of the Lord is the start of wisdom, the commencement of wisdom. It doesn't mean that. It means also, not only that, but it also means this. The fear of the Lord is the principle of wisdom. Let me put it this way. The fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom, the first thing. It means a foundation, however high you build a building, its character is shaped by the foundation. It can't uh, go out any other way. It's got to take the shape of its foundation upward. You see? And that's like the fear of the Lord. When there's the fear of the Lord, then everything the Lord erects upon that comes from that foundation, that first thing, that fundamental thing, fear of the Lord. This fear is not a servile dread of the Lord. This fear is not I fear him because of what he might do to me, but I fear to hurt him. I have come so to understand the Lord, and so to understand his purpose and his love, and the fact that he's working for my good. And I really fear uh, of uh, compromising him. Fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom. I think that's very, very interesting um, and something that we all need to take note of. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the chief part, it says in one part, one of those scriptures, scriptures, the chief part of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. 
So you see, if you, you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as wisdom, practically outworking your life, well then you've got to ask yourself, is there any fear of the Lord in your life? I mean, you see, fear of the Lord means that you repeat the same mistake all the time. Fear of the Lord means that you're irreverent. Fear of the Lord means that you tempt the Lord. Fear of the Lord means that you take his name in vain. All those things. The Lord does not hold anyone guiltless who takes his name in vain. That doesn't just mean swearing. It means saying Lord when he's not Lord. That's all. That's taking the name of the Lord in vain. So you see, we have to be very careful on these things. Fear of the Lord is the thing. And uh, I believe the Lord understands us all. We don't all go away to... Uh, terribly worried in one one wrong way because the Lord does understand we live in the 20th century and the whole context of life is against the fear of the Lord there's no such thing as the fear of the Lord in life today and we've all taken it on, we're all coloured by it but you see, when you come into the house of God the first thing you hit is the fear of the Lord you soon begin to discover that if you say so and so, you don't get away with it if you do so and so, you don't get away with it it comes back on like a boomerang Whatever you touch the house of God, however imperfect, that's the first thing that happens. You can't get away with anything. You say or do. Not because the Lord is a hard, cruel, severe kind of father, but as the scripture says, he chastens us because he loves us. He will not allow anything to go uncorrected because he's training us up in the way that we should go. So the book of Proverbs has a most remarkable answer. Well, there we are. I'd like to say a lot more. There's the outline. Knox has a very wonderful thing for Proverbs 2.6, if you want to look at it. He puts it like this. Wisdom is the Lord's gift, and it comes through his spoken word. And I think that's very wonderful. I don't mean just speaking as I'm speaking now, but through his written word, spoken. Very wonderful. Wisdom is the Lord's gift, and comes through his spoken word. There's the outline, very simple. There's a title, Proverbs 1.1, 1, 1, the collection of Solomon. Introduction to verse 2 to 6, and it's a very remarkable introduction. It tells you the whole, exactly what the collection's about, what, he, what they're setting out to do. It's for, from the little young fellow right up to the old white-haired gentleman uh, to literally instruct all in the Lord. Then the theme, the fear of the Lord is and then the discourse on wisdom we find its source, its character its value and its end in chapter 1 we find the cry of wisdom, she stands in the marketplace as all the youngsters are going out into life and she sees some getting into the hands of harlots and so on and she cries out to them oh don't go there don't you understand what the end of all that is she says you will enjoy it for a while but the end it's disease that will kill us. And then, chapter 2, you find the obtaining of wisdom. The whole chapter, seek, seek, seek wisdom, seek after it, you'll get it. Eat of the tree of wisdom, you'll have it, but you must seek. Chapter 3 is the principle of wisdom. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding and all thy ways acknowledge him. He shall direct thy path. Honour the Lord with the first fruits of thy substance, and so on. In that you find that uh, there's a principle in wisdom. 
principle of wisdom. Giving the Lord his pledge. That's the principle of wisdom. And then in chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7, you have the preservation, the development, and the discipline of wisdom. A very remarkable number of chapters that speak of, of the end of wisdom being life and the end of folly being death. Folly in Scripture is not what some of us might think, just being simple. Uh, it's not that. Folly in Scripture is not receiving the reproof of the Lord. That's called folly in Scripture. And then, uh, then in chapter 8, as I've said, Christ is revealed as the wisdom of God. And then in chapter 9, you have a wonderful feast. On the one side, wisdom, as a woman, prepares a wonderful feast. And she goes out and she says, now everyone, come into the feast. Come in, anyone who will, come in. The end of it is life. And then there's a harlot. She's called Father. She prepares a feast. And she goes out and says, Come in. Come in to me. And she says, Wonderful thing. But the, the, the end of it is the grave. Death is the end. And then you have from chapter 10 to 29, what we've all read earlier this evening, all those problems, a vast range of practical applications applied to all kinds of situations. And then lastly, in chapter 30 and 31, you have the conclusion, a very wonderful conclusion, that I think, if I'm right, you may prove me wrong on this point, because I, my memory just further, but I think there are either five, five groups of four things in that chapter. There are four generations, and then there are four wonderful ways, and then there are four very little things that are very wise. And then there are four stately things and so on. It's like the book of Job. The end is the wisdom of God in creation. And if you look at those, those groups of four, you will be very surprised. And I expect some of you will say, now why is the Bible that there? I don't understand. The way of a ship in the sea. The way of a serpent on a rock. You might think just the way of an eagle in the sky and the way of a man for the man. You might think, now, does that mean you well, we have to go away and think about those The four little things, the ancestors, the lizard, and so on, the coach, the rock badger, and so on. You, you'll go away and think about those But the end of the book of Proverbs is a woman thing. Very interesting. And it's a, a great dissertation on the virtue of a wise woman. Now, that's not just a word for the sisters, I might say. Although it may be taken that way, I've no doubt, with great benefit to everyone. But it's not just a word. I believe the end is the personification of the bride, of the, of the lamb. This is the kind of thing he's looking for. And you, you wait till you read. I wish I had time. I'd love to have read it to you this evening. You wait till you see what she can do. She can weave, and she can sow, and she can uh, plant, and she can reap, and she can, oh, she can do everything. Uh, she can keep him happy. Uh, she can do everything. The most remarkable woman. And she's described as being absolutely, as it were, uh, uh, the last word, as far as God is concerned. 
Now, you may think that's rather strange, but I don't think it just, it's just a little word uh, for uh, the sisters. I think that that's like, as in chapter 8, you find wisdom personified as, as Christ. So the end is someone who's become wise in Christ. A bride that has come to have the same character, the same nature, the same life, the same beauty uh, as the Lord Jesus himself. Well, may the Lord help us. I'm afraid that's a little rough than so on, but I trust that, the, that it will bear for Dear Lord, we pray thee to take hold of these poor words this evening and write them on our hearts. There's such a lot, Lord, there. So much that could all just sink into oblivion. Lord, what is of thyself? We pray that thou save it, stand in the way of it, just passing back into the mists of our minds, never to become a practical help. We pray thee by thy Holy Spirit, Lord, thou take this in years to come, not only now, not only tonight, not only these days, but, Lord, in years to come, may, may the book of Proverbs be an instrument in thy hands of continual instruction to us all, Lord, and of continual correction and training up in the way in which we should go. We ask it together in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.